If you live in your suburban castle and you only ever go out in your suburban land yacht and the only humans you ever interact with are clerks is the target checker or your or your barista at Starbucks like you lose that sense of of sociality you think you start thinking of yourself as a driver as a consumer right and so what's good for drivers and consumers that starts to be how you interact with civic life through that lens like I got to defend my parking and my access to my local fucking <laughs> Starbucks. Like, I honestly think that suburban living on a on a subtle sort of subterranean level pulls you in the direction of sociopathy. Hey, everybody. Welcome to The War on Cars. I'm Aaron Napperstack. I'm on my own this week. Going to do a one-on-one solo episode here. We do a lot of criticism at The War on Cars, right? We critique drivers, automakers, city DOTs, tech companies, Super Bowl ads. But if you listen to this podcast, there's a pretty decent chance that you're basically on board with the critique, right? Just going out on a limb, you are probably sick of your city being overrun by exhaust spewing, horn honking, space hogging, glacier melting cars. You are down with the critique. And it is, of course, always satisfying and fun to hear the critique. It's cathartic. But what you might really be wondering is, what can we do about it? What are the solutions? You know, Are there cities out there that are winning the war on cars? And if so, how? And that is what we're going to talk about today. My guest, you heard his voice at the top, is David Roberts. David writes about energy and climate for Vox.com. You might know him by his Twitter handle, drvox. Last October, David spent 10 days in Barcelona, Spain, where he took a deep, deep dive into Barcelona's plan to squeeze cars out of the city by creating what they're calling superias. Or in English, super blocks. Here's what Barcelona's doing. They're taking nine square city blocks. So picture like a tic-tac-toe board and they will close off the inside of those nine blocks to through traffic. So cars and trucks trying to get from one part of town to the next have to drive around the outside of the tic-tac-toe board. Cars can still get inside of super blocks for local trips, but speeds are limited to 10 kilometers per hour. It's like a walking speed. And a lot of the street space that was devoted to through traffic is being given back to the people who live inside the super blocks for playgrounds or markets or benches or treat, whatever the residents of the super block decide they want. The super block is essentially a new kind of micro neighborhood. So with all that said, here is David Roberts from Vox.com with the story of Barcelona super blocks. The story goes back to this this fellow named Salvador Rueda, a, a great lover of Barcelona and has been thinking really hard about how to make it better for many, many years. And he was in city government in the 80s and he knows there's this noise problem in Barcelona. And so he started just doing studies. You know, how can we reduce noise to sort of the recommended levels that the World Health Organization recommends for just sort of general human safety? And And, and long story short, what he found was if you're living on a street where cars go, you know, 20 miles an hour or faster, you just can't. 
There's no way to live next to fast-moving automobiles and live with a healthy level of noise. It's just not possible. So that's where the idea of superblocks came from. He, the idea is sort of what if we put all that through traffic? I mean, right now, every street in Barcelona pretty much is a through street, right? It's all like 20 plus miles an hour made for vehicles, basically. And his, so his thought was, what if we reduced the number of through streets by like 75%, right? You just choose certain streets cutting through Barcelona to be the through streets, kind of the arterials, and then everything else in between those arterials, we traffic calm and make into mixed use public space. You know, you're, you're moving all the vehicle traffic onto a few select streets and everybody else gets freed up to have quiet and breathable air. Oh my God, I love that. I think that's, that's kind of amazing that this sort of radical you know, transformative urban plan kind of starts with, with car noise. But before we get too deep into it, I mean, tell me a little bit about the city itself. Like, what is the urban environment like? What was it about Barcelona that made city officials so open to the idea of just pushing out cars? So basically, like, all of Barcelona from end to end is dense, mixed-use zoning, you know, stores and stuff on the ground floor and, and four or five living stories above that. That's basically the rule in Barcelona. So it's an incredibly population-dense city and always has been. It is also now one of the most automobile-dense <laughs> cities in Europe. I think it might even be the single most automobile-dense city in Europe. It has three times the auto density of London, twice that of, of Madrid, so there's just lots of concrete, there's lots of cars, and consequently there's lots of noise. It's one of the noisiest cities in Europe, and it's also got bad air pollution from vehicles. So all the ills that come along with cars are sort of concentrated in Barcelona. So, so all of which is just to say that in Barcelona, the, the political will to reduce vehicle traffic is sort of across the board. It's not a politically contested uh, issue there. I mean, obviously the details are contested, but I think everybody agrees across the board that something's got to be done to sort of dig out from under cars. So that was kind of the vision that Salvador Rueda had early on. And he's been bouncing this idea of superblocks around for a while. The first one they built was in the neighborhood of Bourne, and that was back in the early 1990s. And then they built another one in the Gracia neighborhood, which if, if people have ever been to Barcelona, I'm sure they visited Gracia. It's got narrow streets, it's all pedestrianized, it's very, uh, it's very nice, it's very touristy at this point. They did that in like 2006, I think. But the sort of key turning point here was the previous mayor, Trias, was a center right guy, but you know acknowledged this huge problem with cars, and basically the city adopted Rueda's plan, and and I'll tell you, Aaron, like I reported on this story for a long time and talked to people about every aspect of it, and the one part of it that remained a mystery to me to this day was how on earth did that happen? How did a center right administration adopt this plan that's so wildly 
like radical beyond what literally any other city in the world is doing. It sort of quietly adopted it. And they just sort of quietly started holding these kind of informational sessions, talking with neighbors and so forth. And they were sort of deliberately and slowly moving ahead when in 2015, there were municipal elections and, um, you know, anybody who's been following Barcelona, the, the region it's part of in northeastern Spain, it's the semi-autonomous region, Catalonia. And there's, you know, for a long, long time been fights over independence. Catalonia wants independence from Spain. But, but anyway, so, so during all that, that kind of threw Barcelona politics into a crazy tailspin. The various coalitions that had held the city government together, the center right and center left, kind of splintered apart over this question of independence and in snuck this radical leftist party, like to everyone's complete shock and surprise. And so the leader of this, Barcelona in Camus is called, uh, her name is Ada Colau. She was this housing activist, like famous, sort of semi-famous in Spain for being on TV, you know, having chained herself to buildings, became mayor. And this was just crazy, crazy pants. So among other things, the Colau administration adopted the Superblocks plan and were sort of enthusiastic to get it going and like move forward in a way that Trias had not been. They, they gave it a different slogan. The slogan is now, let's fill the streets with life <laughs> and, and started moving forward with a couple of pilot projects. And so that's the story up to like 2016. So, all right. So 2015, Colau is elected mayor. She's the fiery leftist housing activist. And about a year later, in July 2016, flyers are sent around a neighborhood called Poblenau, announcing that there's soon going to be a new superblock. So tell me what happened with that project. You know, I'm from Seattle. And sort of the rule here on urbanism is anything at all is difficult to do and will be fought tooth and nail by by wealthy residents and and will involve like excruciatingly extended process you know talk and talk 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 meetings stakeholders it's never ending so and it usually results in inaction at the end of all that you know like that's sort of the rule in US urbanism so i go to Barcelona. And I hear the story of what happened in Poblano, this little neighborhood of Poblano. And just for background, like Poblano is a decent sized area, but this little chunk, this nine square block chunk of Poblano that they decided to make into a super block, it's not particularly trafficy or anything. So it's not like they went there to solve a particular problem, which is different than Gracia. Because when they went to Gracia, like it was crowded with cars and tourists and there was like a problem to solve. Here, this was sort of a pure test case. Just like, can we take an average neighborhood and super block it? (laughs) You know, the government is running this consultation process with neighborhoods. Meanwhile, this group of architectural students, somehow they get City Hall to agree to a temporary super block in Poblano. Wow. So what happens is like they put a few flyers up a couple months in advance. But as I talked to people in Poblano, basically like most of them didn't know it was coming at all (laughs) those who had seen the flyers were sort of like what does this mean and is it temporary is it going to last like really almost no consultation and so one weekend they come in the students 
in Salvador Rueda, and they basically just cut off that nine square block area. Like they cut off, they they reversed the direction of the one way street signs, and and like painted some game boards on the street. But basically, like came in and cut off all traffic to this nine square block area with like chalk and tires in the course of like 24 hours. And so most of the people who live in Poblano just kind of woke up one morning and like, oh, hello, there's a super block outside my my door. Wow. So like really minimal public process, sounds like. Yeah, minimal public process. And it's what they call tactical urbanism. You know, it's sort of this urbanism where you go in and make big behavioral changes with relatively small, cheap changes, you know, like painting lines on the road or, or just turning signs around. So it was like this radical thing that got dropped on Poblano, basically. So it's really interesting. So for the first several months, there was, as you would expect, some people not only in the nine square block area, but sort of around the periphery of it were upset that their sort of driving patterns and routines had been disrupted. And they were upset that like taxi cabs couldn't find them anymore. And, you know, all this kind of basically upset in the way people get when you change their (laughs) day-to-day habits. Right. And for a while, there was this really loud, organized citizen group against the Poblano Superblock that was like getting all this press in the papers. And so for a while, like in 2015, 16, there was this, there was real question about whether it was going to survive. But then it's really interesting. I was talking to people and sort of several things kind of started happening. One is, you know, they started meeting one another. (laughs) Like one of the residents of this area told me like, I've been living here for nine years and it's just been a ghost town. There's no life here. And then this thing got put in. And so now we can come out and like play with our kids in the street and, you know, walk or just, just sit on these picnic benches. And we're starting to meet each other you know, and they started to have like parties and stuff and, and social gatherings. And they started to get to know one another. And they're like, hey, this is kind of cool. We kind of like this. We kind of like each other. We kind of like having a community. Let's organize to try to keep this thing. So in a funny way, the super block itself created the public space that allowed these people to organize to keep the super block. Exactly. Exactly. And that's mm-hmm. <laughs> sort of the, the, the absolutely at the core of all those. But but. You know, it, it, the way the way someone described it to me uh, was when they first cut off traffic and these streets were first open. She was like, it was kind of tentative, like people would sort of like tiptoe out there. Like, can I just right. walk here? You know, sort of like shy use of this new space. But over time, as they became accustomed to it, they sort of like realized, you know, as you can sort of imagine, like, oh, my God, we got nine blocks of open area to work with, to do whatever we want to do for our community, you know? So like over time, they're like, hey, this is awesome. But basically, I mean, what was striking to me, and this is sort of how I started off this whole story, is just imagine in in Brooklyn, you know, or, or Seattle, the city administrators just coming in and cutting off all traffic to a nine square block area, painting some lines on the ground and being like, hey, this is the new thing now. And just like meeting with residents and saying, hey, you guys got all this now. What would you like to do with it? You know, instead of going and asking them up front, can we make a big change? They just made the change. And then they went afterwards and said, what would you guys like to do with all this space? 
Yeah, that's a that's an interesting way to approach it. I mean, I think people would just absolutely freak out where I live. <laughs> right? Know, just right? It's nuts. incredibly ballsy. I couldn't believe it worked, but like, but it's brilliant also because you know you. I'm sure you know better than anyone, especially when it comes to urbanism. There's this whole set of changes that people always fear and resist on the front end, and always love and embrace on the back end, once it's done, like creating new open public spaces, like uh, what New York City did with Broadway. Like, of course people fought it beforehand, and of course they loved it afterwards. And it's the same with this. It's the same with every time you create some new shared public space. And they never seem to learn from loving it about the next fight. You know what I mean? It's like the same damn fight. Every time, it almost seems like something of like core to human nature, almost. So given that, this is kind of a genius way to get around that. You just hop over it, right? You do the change, the hard part, in a kind of shock doctrine way, and then come in and talk to them about the part they like, which is, hey, you've got this big new public space. What would you like to do with it? How can we make it reflect the personality of your community? And like people get engaged on that and they love it, you know? So just like, what else could we do with this sort of tactical urbanism? You know what I mean? Like what else could we do if like city administrators got some like gonads and really, and really wanted to go for it? Like it's a funny contradiction, right? Because a lot of the people who are doing this work are saying, Hey, we're trying to create a, you know, a radically democratic transformation of our city, you know, right. by creating better public space. And then on the other hand, <laughs> The, you know, it seems like maybe the best way to go about doing that is through sort of autocratic means because, you know, yeah. people can't really evaluate it when they don't even know what it is. I mean, maybe now that we have some super blocks on the ground in Barcelona, it'll be easier to make to create super blocks two, three, four, and five and once you have one up and running. Yeah, that's exactly what one of the Poblano residents told me is in retrospect, I'm glad they short-circuited the process because we just couldn't know until we saw it. And that's sort of like so many things in good urbanism are that way. Unless you sort of have direct experience, you just don't know what you're missing. You don't know what's possible. And so the changes will scare you, but like people can see them now and they're starting to ask for them. Like that's what I heard from city administrators is the now they're like people in the neighborhoods are starting to proactively say, when do we get our super block, right? So it really really was just that sort of one brash act of tactical urbanism that kind of got the whole thing started. And that's like, that's what I don't ever see in Seattle is any uh, city administrator with with the, the will or courage to sort of just go for it like that. Right. I mean, I think it takes a lot of guts to, you know, you're going to get a lot of heat. But I I just want to like ask a pragmatic question that I imagine comes up in a lot of people's minds. But, you know, what what happens to the traffic? I mean, if if you close off nine square blocks to motor vehicle traffic, it's great for the people inside the super block. But, you know, are the people outside the super block screwed? Are the people who are kind of forced to drive for their jobs or their, you know, it's just the only way they have to get around? Are there are their lives made worse by this? I mean, what do they do about this? Yeah, that is the obvious first question. And the answer is two things. One is you have to reduce overall 
automobile use in in conjunction with this, right? So you can't just like stomp into any city and start super blocking it. You need a certain amount of like population density in place in, in, in an area. You need mixed use zoning and you need transit. You need ways for people to get around the city other than cars, right? Because you need to reduce overall automobile traffic. And so while implementing superblocks, they are also implementing a bunch of other measures to reduce overall vehicle traffic. So they're bulking up their bicycle network. They're creating these separated bike lanes all over Barcelona. It's really moving quickly. They just got done with a like redesign of their bus system. So the bus system covers the whole city much more equitably now. It's much more reliable. There are actually fewer routes now, but there are more buses per route. So the sort of goal was to make A, anybody in the city lives within 300 meters of a bus stop, and B, there's an average wait time of no more than two minutes at every bus stop in the city. And that's including in the center and at the periphery. This was sort of like one of the things Rueda has insisted on throughout this whole process is equity, right? Like the quality has to be consistent across the city. So everybody gets the super block. Everybody gets the convenient bus accessibility, right? Like everybody gets these things, not just the wealthy areas. So Salvador Rueda sort of ran the numbers, ran the model. And he was like, um, if we implemented this super block plan across the city, how much would we have to reduce overall vehicle traffic in the city such that those arterial streets were no worse off, right? Were no worse off than they were before. And so what he came up with was 13%. If we can reduce overall automobile use 13%, then we can do the whole Superblocks plan and the people on the arterials will at least be as good off as they were before. What he found was when he ran the numbers and if they implement all these transit changes and all these proposed changes and all these superblocks and everything else, overall vehicle traffic is expected to decline by 21%, which is just to say that if they, if they follow through and implement the whole plan, that the people on the arterials, even, even the people who are living on the remaining arterials will... Uh, be exposed to less vehicle traffic than they were before the plan was implemented. Well, and, and, and is there a single city in North America that actually has a plan that is specifically designed to reduce the number of cars and the amount of driving that's coming into the city? I don't, I don't know that there is. Don't they all though? I mean, I know they all want to like every, it seems like every city has at least become cognizant of this, like cognizant of congestion and like at least cognizant of the fact that maybe they can't build their way out of congestion. But the way we do it here, it's always like more like, so, okay, so we're going to build more, you know, we're going to build a hundred miles of new protected bike lanes. We're going to add a lane to the freeway. You know, we're going to like always add something in America, you know, we never just like, yeah, or just make our existing spaces nicer. I mean, what was sort of eye opening to me about this is like, how do you, uh, give neighbors nice open space, just kick the cars out and use the street, right? So right. it's like, we think of cities as so crowded, but that's because almost all of the space in them we've given over to cars. Like if this whole plan is implemented, 70% of the street surface in Barcelona will be devoted to mixed use 
shared space where all sort of modalities are equally welcome. And that's just fucking amazing. And that's a lot of, you know, it turns out to be a lot of space. And you, and you think about it, like for any American city, there's tons and tons of space. It's just, we've given it to cars. So we don't think of it as space anymore, but like we could like all the things we want and enjoy like street life, having a local community, like what, well, I mean, if you, if you talk to Rueda, like if you get him going about sort of the vision, he'll, he'll get dreamy with you after a while. And sort of like what he envisions for these super blocks is not just that they're chunks of traffic calmed area, but that they become sort of like self-contained communities that they have shared health clinics, that they have shared gardens and shared recycling facilities. In other words, that obviously you're not going to get like a totally autonomous self-sustaining community in the middle of an urban area, but like, but something more coherent than just an area, you know, he wants to make these into communities. And this is like, you know, if you, if you, I know as an urbanist, you've looked at all this research, but like people in general and Americans in particular are just lonely and they're fucking miserable and they're anxious <laughs> and they're depressed. And it's like, uh, we talk about all the different reasons for these things. And I, I really feel like land use gets left out of those conversations. And yeah. one of the things that we know scientifically reliably makes us happier and more fulfilled in our lives is just having a community that we're part of that values us, that we play a role in. And, and, and we also know from research that the number one way human beings make friends is not through, shared interests or any sort of anything abstract or elevated like that. It's literally just who you bump into. It's literally, it, it, it's, it's who you're around. That's the number one indicator of who you befriend. And so to make friends and have a social life, you know, if you're in single family home in the suburbs to see another human being in a non-commercial context requires planning basically, right? right? Like you've got to call, you got to deal with the, with the shared Google calendar. You got to find a night, maybe a babysitter, etc. It's a pain in the ass. And so people don't do it. But if you have just this sort of like area outside your door where you're, where you go get your groceries, where you go and hang out at the cafe and your neighbors are just around mingling, then you naturally bump into them and naturally make friends and are naturally happier because you have a community. And the whole idea for Salvador Rueda is for everyone in the city, rich or poor, to have that, to have a community. All right, last item for you. One of my favorite quotes from your series was Kalau saying, public space is the place for democracy, this space that belongs to all of us. The more public space there is and the better its quality, the better the quality of the democracy. And, you know, it really made me think like, okay, well, like U.S. democracy seems pretty damn broken right now. <laughs> and, yep. you know, do you think there, you know, that maybe better urbanization, like fewer cars, less automobile dependence, more walkable, bikeable, transit-oriented places, places with better public spaces where we can like gather and see each other, not necessarily buying stuff. Could this actually be part of the solution for fixing America's broken democracy? Yes. <laughs> strong, Was that a leading strong, question? Yes. <laughs> yeah, I know. You're really setting me up here. That is correct, Aaron. <laughs> Thanks, um, David. Uh, I mean, I, I, I absolutely think so. And this is like, to me, this is like the, 
the hippie woo-woo side of Superblocks was I tried not to get too much into the story. But that was like, my favorite part. I loved the hippie woo-woo stuff. But, but, but like, but Rueda and, and the people at his, at his think tank are very much on that page. Like they, and they see the same thing happening in the EU, right? Sort of the loss of social solidarity. And they very much tie it to the loss of public space. Like, as Rueda said, like, public space is what makes a city. If you don't have public space, you just have an urban area. But like, being out on the street amidst people of different ages, there's school kids headed off to school, there's old people relaxing on benches, there's young lovers, there's, you know, there's like families at sidewalk cafes. And everyone's with one another and around one another and accommodating and adjusting their behavior to live with one another, right? It just like, it gives you a feeling of being a part of something that you don't ever get in most U.S. cities. It's very frustrating. Like it really does to me inspire some sense of solidarity, right? you know, and that, that's what you get from public space. That's what you get from living together as you learn to live with other people. And if you live in your suburban castle and you only ever go out in your suburban land yacht and the only humans you ever interact with are clerks is the target checker or your, or your barista at Starbucks. Like you just, you lose that sense of, of sociality. You think you start thinking of yourself as a driver, as a consumer Right. And so what's good for drivers and consumers? That starts to be how you interact with civic with civic life it, through that lens. Like I got to defend my parking and my access to my local <laughs> Starbucks. Like it just it makes you I honestly think that suburban living on a on a subtle sort of subterranean level pulls you in the direction of sociopathy. It pulls you in the direction of antisocial thinking and attitudes and conversely just being out around among people gives you more of a sense of social solidarity and more of a sense of being in it together and having to accommodate other people's right perspectives and 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 desires so yes i'm a big believer in in land use being a big part of a like helping to restore democracy but b like helping to restore some sense of social social solidarity fraternity among citizens, but also like dealing with this, this epidemic of loneliness and isolation and like all these poor old people who are stranded out in the suburbs now, like, you know, they can't drive anymore. Like it's just going to be miserable for them. So, uh, I'm, I'm a huge believer in all that. And like one thing I'd like to do for us progressive politics is fold urbanism into it more thoroughly, right? So that you start thinking of public space and the way we use land as part of progressive values. And you are just not allowed anymore to be a wealthy single family homeowner fighting to keep other people out of your neighborhood and calling yourself a liberal. Like, I don't care if you have your fucking hemp tote bag and you drive a Prius if you're keeping other people from creating dense urban areas, you are a conservative. You're a reactionary. That's what reactionaries do is preserve their privileges at the expense of newcomers. Um, 
this guy, uh, Will Wilkinson at the, at the Niskanen Center is doing some fascinating research on the sort of rural uh, urban split, you know, which is not new. But what mm-hmm. he's finding is that areas flip from red to blue at a certain point of population density. And that point holds true across the country in every region of the country. In other words, it's not like a Southern thing or a Northeastern thing. Whether an area is red or blue is almost entirely predicted by its population density. And it follows from that, that if you are a progressive and you want for there to be more progressives, (laughs) then part of the way you can create more progressives is to create more dense areas, right? The more density there is, the more progressives there are, the more liberals there are, and the mm. more liberal thinking the people who live there are. So so I feel like that should get folded into our political strategy as well. Start thinking of density not just as something that like knowledge workers enjoy for the amenities, you know, but like something that is an actual tool for for helping bolstering and expanding progressive politics. Right. I think that's a great place to to leave it. Awesome. Thought, yeah, your pieces were great. I mean, they're just excellent series of articles. I read them twice, and I. I know. think you're one of like two dozen people, maybe, who read, <laughs> who, who read the whole thing, but but all two dozen of them love it. That's sort of that's my kind of my signature thing, Aaron. I write for a small <laughs> but very enthusiastic audience. That's it for this episode of The War on Cars. Thanks for listening. David Roberts wrote a fantastic five-part series on Barcelona Superblocks. You can find it on Vox.com. Really worth checking out. If you are so inspired, please visit our website, thewaroncars.org. Click donate. Contribute on Patreon. Help us keep the show going. We'll send you some stickers, even a t-shirt. This episode was produced by Matt Cutler. This was recorded by Josh Wilcox in the Brooklyn Podcasting Studio. Eilish O'Neill recorded David's side of the conversation in Seattle. Thanks, Eilish. On behalf of my co-hosts, Sarah Goodyear and Doug Gordon, I'm Aaron Napperstack, and this is The War on Cars. <laughs>